welcome. Really glad, glad you're here this morning. I just, man, we love you. We love you very, very much. Um, and if, if you're here for the first time, um, we love you too. We've been praying for you. We really do love you. And hopefully, um, by connecting with this body of Christ, that, that you actually see God through us. That's, that's our prayer. That's really our prayer. So, uh, good morning. Uh, I'm, I'm glad we're back, um, but I miss vacation. There's always that tension, isn't there, right? Um, but we are glad we're back. And um, this month, uh, this month we, we start a new series. Um, I, I'd like for you to open up to Matthew, um, the, the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, these are the scriptures that we're going to be referencing today. Um, and uh, all of you, whether you know it or not, have a gene- genealogy. I remember in, in, in college I had to draw up a genogram. Uh, of my family and kind of figure out um, some of my ancestry. Um, I couldn't go very far back. Um, I only was able to get back to like the late 1800s. Um, but all of you, all of you have, have a genealogy. All of you have, have a, a lineage or an ancestry. Um, and typically, and I'm, I'm not asking a rhetorical question, uh, I'm asking a legitimate question that you can respond to. It's okay, you can talk in church. Um, typically, when you trace your lineage, your ancestry, uh, your line, who do you typically start with? Your mom or dad or you, right? We typically start with us because we want, we, we want to find out about us, right? And we typically draw the line from us to mom and pa on one side and mom and pa on the other side. Sometimes we don't know mom or sometimes we don't know dad on the one side, but we typically start with us and we draw the line backward as far as we can go. The gospel writer Matthew decides to do it a little bit differently. He decides to begin the line of Jesus' genealogy somewhere at the start. Not at the very, very beginning, but somewhere around the start. So if you would open up to Matthew chapter 1, this is the gospel, the first gospel in, in, in the New Testament. This is right after Malachi, so it's on the right-hand side of the Bible. Um, I'm going to read verse 1 um, and continue. A record of of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. He starts there. He doesn't start with Jesus. He he starts way, way back, far, far away, in a land far, far away, galaxy far, far away. And he starts with Abraham. And this is a chapter that probably most of us kind of like skip. But see, a genealogy is not just a mere list of names, folks. It's not just a biological lineage. It's not just a bunch of donors. 
These are lives. These, the ancestry and the lineage is full of story. And quite frankly, I think a lot of us could probably identify some way or another with the lineage of Jesus Christ. Because you know what? Jesus Christ actually has in his line some scandalous skeletons in the closet that more than likely, if they were in your closet, you would keep them hidden. You would kick them to the back of the closet and cover them with clothes. But there's also those in Jesus' genealogy, in the line of the king, that would, you would want at the front of the closet. You would say, come on out. I want you to meet the rest of the family because you were going to polish you and put you on the lampstand. We want everybody to see you when you come into the home. There are some of those folks in the line, in the lineage of Jesus, but there's more scandalous skeletons in Jesus' line than the nice, polished people, the notables. In this series called In the Line of the King, we're going to focus on a, a very brief section, kind of the middle lineage of Jesus. But I want you to understand, and I want to make it very, very clear, that as we look at the lineage and the line of Jesus Christ, the line of the king, you, as a child of God, are in the line of the king. Your life may have some scandalous skeletons. Let me say it again. Your life may have some scandalous skeletons that you prefer to shove way back in the closet that you don't want anyone to know that you put on the, the mask or the facade, you keep it, play it close to the chest. But I want you to know that as a child of God, you're still in the line of the king. It doesn't matter the skeletons in your closet. God can redeem and heal and renew and restore. That's the beauty, right? So, verse 5 and 6 in Matthew. Now, I don't know if you pronounce that as salmon or salmon. I just, let's go with salmon because I think it's funny. Um, salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, skeleton, whose mother was Rahab, skeleton. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Ah, ah, that might be a skeleton. Uh, Obed, the father of Jesse. Jesse, oh man. That might be a skeleton as well, the way he handled his children. And Jesse, the father of King David. Ooh, King David, do we polish him up and put him on the lampstand? 
He also has some skeletons in his own closet. David was the father of Solomon. Oh, here it is. Whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Skeleton. Folks. <laughs> skeletons in the closet. They're in Jesus' closet as well. Yet. Yet. Out of all that, we have Jesus Christ, the King and the Redeemer. So, you can flip to the book of Ruth, which is a hard left, all the way to the front end of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Yeah, that's right. Joshua, Judges, Ruth. This story... This story is in the line of the king. And quite frankly, had this story not had happened, we might not have the king from this line. This is a story marked by disaster, marked by displacement, marked by depression, tragedy, grief, loss, It is a story riddled with overwhelming circumstances quite beyond human control. Quite frankly, when people say God does not give us more than we can handle, that's a bunch of baloney because that's not scriptural. If God didn't give us more than we can handle, why would we need God? Right? Things God didn't say. That should be a sermon series. This was a situation that was beyond what someone can handle. But out of this, this situation, out of this story, comes support, comes love, comes strengthening, comes sharpening. Something that we all need a lesson out of this story comes to the church, the church universal and the church Wapaknaz, that we can learn from, that we need to take heart to, and not only take heart to and shake and nod our heads on a Sunday morning saying, yes, I agree with that, but something that we actually moves us and shapes us and shifts us to the point that it becomes lifestyle. It becomes something that we innately do and look for and pray for and ask for and seek out and try and do. Um, this is, this is uh, my journal-ish. I don't write lots of paragraphs. I just write bullet points. And I went back into it this morning um, to look over a few things. And I was reminded of a question that I had been asking God that I wrote down on August 9th um, this past month. And that question is, how can we and what do we need to do so that Wapak Naz outlives us? There's a lot of churches that are asking the question, 
when are the doors going to close? That's a question that a lot of churches are asking across the country. But the question is different here. The question is, how can this church, what is it that we do or can do in order that this church will outlive you and me? That's a different question. And I think the lesson is right here. And in fact, I think the lesson is not only right here in the book of Ruth, but it's also in the first few chapters of the book of Samuel, 1 Samuel, which is the next book. So let's just kind of look at this story for a moment. Um, in this story, I'm not going to be able to read all four chapters. I'm just going to pull out highlights because there's not enough time today. You could actually, if you've never read the book of Ruth, you could read this book in about a matter of 15 minutes. And you can really see what God does. But I'm just going to bring some highlights. The story starts with a, with a famine in the nation of Israel. And it's hit home very personally and very close to home. And a particular family, a particular family in the town of Bethlehem, yes, Bethlehem, you know that little town that we, yeah, there you go. A little town of Bethlehem, the house of bread, that ancient food pantry. And there's nothing in the cupboard. And it's hit so close to home that a family, a father, a mother, and two kids look around and they pack up all their belongings. The father's name is Elimelech. You can say that ten times fast and it's really cool. Elimelech. And his wife, Naomi. And their two kids, Mahalan and Killian. Really cool names. If you're having a kid, you might want to consider that. Mahalan and Killian. They pack up their bags. Because the famine is so severe. And they choose to travel the King's Highway south. South and west. And they go to a place called Moab. What does that mean? Well, if we were just reading this story, we wouldn't understand really what that meant. But Moab and Moabites and Israelites, they don't get along together. So much so that there's a lot of hatred and bitterness. It, it's more than avoiding one another, folks. It's not like you're in Walmart and you see that person and you duck down the other aisle. It's nothing like that. You know you do it. I've done it before. <laughs> I'll admit it. Forgive me, Lord. Um, It's harsh. Think of a place that you would not want to end up in. That you would be ridiculed and hated very, very vehemently. They end up in Moab. They set up shop where there's food. And then tragedy strikes. Naomi loses her husband. We don't know what happened. 
chapter 1 doesn't tell us. But now we have a widow, a grief-stricken widow, in a foreign country, in a foreign land, who feels like she doesn't belong. And her two sons are picking up the slack. Her two sons meet two Moabite women. Orpah, which I always confuse with Oprah when you read it. Um, Orpah and Ruth. And they marry these two women. And the boys take care of mom. But after about ten years, something tragic happens again. Does this sound like anybody's life? Like it seems things just, bad things just seem to happen? Now we have a mother who has lost her husband, who has lost her two boys who are to, to care for her, and we have two wives that have lost their husbands. And their two wives have not produced any children. So we have two barren wives and a widow who's lost her two sons in a foreign land where she doesn't belong. This is the story of Ruth. This is in the lineage of Jesus. Naomi, she hears about God has come to provide in the land of Israel. And so in her grief, in her overwhelming circumstance, in her situation, she decides to pack up and head to who knows what because she's been gone for at least 10 years, if not more. She doesn't know what to expect to, when she gets back. She only knows that there is food, and that is her homeland, that she's been a stranger and she hasn't belonged for a long time. And so she's with her two daughters-in-law, and they start to hike up the King's Highway to the north, and she pauses in her tracks, she turns around, and he looks, she looks at her daughters-in-law. And she begins to tell them, go home. Go back to your family. And Naomi describes herself as essentially hopeless. I have nothing to give you. I have nothing to offer you. If I were to meet and have a husband tonight and have kids, would you wait around for those kids to grow up is basically what she says. That doesn't make any sense. Go home to your family. She essentially says, you don't need to be a foreigner in a foreign land like I have been. Be home. Gives them permission. They have no obligation to go with her. So they weep. They kiss. This would make a great scene in a movie. Everybody would be tear-filled. She sends them off. Orpah gives one last kiss and weeps, and she leaves. But, but, this is where the story changes. This is the linchpin in the story. Ruth, Ruth says this. Where you go, 
I will go. And where you will stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. And then she said, may the Lord deal with me, be evident so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. Ruth clings to her mother-in-law. She's not obligated. She doesn't have to. But there's something about this relationship. There's something that has happened over the course of time that Ruth finds in Naomi. And in fact, Naomi finds in Ruth. These are two women who have lost. One older, one younger. But both have lost. And both don't feel like they belong anymore, but they find something there. This, this begins the lesson for the church, for Wapak Naz, for us to figure out how do we let, how does Wapak Naz live well beyond us? And in fact, this is the lesson for the church universal, for the Western church and the world. What we find that happens in this book really speaks. So by the end of chapter 1, by in, this all started, this, this whole thing that I've described to you has been in chapter 1. That's a loaded chapter. They arrive back to Bethlehem, and a harvest is happening. So if you would, look in chapter 2, verse 2. Verse 1, now Naomi and her relative on her husband's side from the clan of Elimelech, a man, standing whose, a man of standing whose name was Boaz. That's just a transition point. But watch what Ruth does. Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. Naomi said to her, go ahead, my daughter. So she went out and began to glean in the fields. There's a scripture in Proverbs, Proverbs 27, 17. It'll be up on the PowerPoint. I'm throwing it in a little bit early. Forgive me. It says, iron sharpens iron. Maybe it's next. There you go. As iron sharpens iron, so one man, one woman, one person sharpens another. Iron sharpens iron. The relationship that Naomi and Ruth have is an iron sharpening iron relationship. It is a mentorship. Naomi pulls Ruth under her wing, but Ruth also provides something to Naomi. The first thing that she does when she gets back is she goes into the fields and gleans the fields. In a moment of transition, how many of you have moved from a place, from a city to another city? That's a major life transition. Displacement is a major life transition. There needs to be some type of stability. Ruth offers this to Naomi who's a woman of old age. 
But Ruth offers this to Naomi. She says, I will take care of us. I will feed us. But something happens in the field. Ruth so happens to, just so happens, to glean from a field of a landowner named Boaz. And what happens in that field is Ruth goes behind all the workers. See, God cares for the poor. And in fact, in the law, in the Old Testament, which this is the Old Testament, in the law, Deuteronomy, in Leviticus, God actually says that when you go through your field, you need to leave things behind for the poor so that they can come and glean the field. Ruth and Naomi are poor, and Ruth goes into that field and picks up the leftover grain. And she meets the landowner, Boaz. And of all the things, Boaz gives her favor, gives her security and safety. This is not a place for a woman to go. This is not a field in which you go into and you are safe. But Boaz Boaz has given Ruth favor and said, "You you go along with the other women. You will be safe. In fact, if you, want, if you want water, you can have as much water as you want. And actually, I want you to sit at the table with all the harvesters. God has given Ruth favor through Boaz. At the end of this chapter, Ruth goes back home. And she doesn't keep silent. She tells of the happenings of the day. Chapter 2, and I believe it's verse 22. Naomi said, and she tells Ruth what happened, and Naomi gives her advice, gives her wisdom. Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it will be good for you, my daughter, to go with these girls that Boaz has allowed you to go with, because in someone else's field you might be harmed. After the harvest is over, chapter 3, we have this interaction that happened with Boaz and Ruth, and she comes back. Ruth comes back to Naomi and gleans more wisdom from Naomi. In fact, Naomi picked up something, kind of like the wise women do. She picked up that Boaz has an eye for Ruth and said, My daughter, chapter 3, verse 1, I'm the fiddler on the roof here. I'm the matchmaker. I'm not going to sing for you. You would leave. You're welcome. Folks, the wisdom of Naomi is completely spoken into this young woman. Iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. The relationship that happens with Naomi and Ruth is not just a familial relationship. This is a mentorship. This is an ironing, sharpened irons type of relationship. Tim Elmore, a guy you probably don't even know, but he's a founder of of growing leaders and the author of Habitudes. Habitudes, excuse me. And he said that this generation is the most connected generation we have ever seen. 
yet this generation is starving for community it's starving for community and what we see with Naomi and Ruth is that Naomi of the older generation has come and put her arm around the younger generation yet by choice the younger generation also puts her arm around the older generation and guess what they learn from one another you want to know the answer to how will Wapak Naz and how will the church universal outlive you and me it's this relationship right here first Samuel first Samuel chapter 3 you can turn there if you want I'm just gonna speak to it Samuel is a young boy he's a product of a mother and a father a father who actually had two wives which was against the law and not the proper way Hannah was barren and she prayed and prayed at the temple Lord if you give me a child I will put him in your hands he'll be yours God answered her prayer opened her womb had Samuel she dedicated Samuel after he was weaned took him to the temple Eli the priest took care of Samuel Samuel slept right next to the Ark of the Covenant and one morning, one evening, Samuel was sleeping, and he heard a voice say, Samuel. He went to Eli, and he ran over to Eli. Did you call me? No, go back to bed. Samuel, Samuel. Runs back to Eli. Did you call me? I am here. Here I am. No, I didn't call you. Shut up, kid. Go to bed. This happened and happened. It was the Lord's voice. Eli said, if you hear the voice again, listen. Listen to the voice. It's the Lord speaking. The next day, Samuel told Eli of what the Lord told him. There was a mentorship. There was a church relationship, but also the familial relationship with Hannah and her son. Folks, the mentorship that happened here had we not had this mentorship, we would not have Samuel, which we'll be speaking of Samuel next week. Folks, we need to be ironing or sharpening one another. I, uh, as a result of this relationship, I'd like for you to open up right at the end of the chapter of Ruth. We'll be wrapping up here very shortly. Very end of, of, of the chapter 4 of Ruth. Verse 16. I said this was a story that was of fullness to emptiness, and now it's back to fullness. I want you to see the fullness, what happens as a result of this relationship. Then Naomi took the child. See, Naomi set her daughter-in-law up with this guy named Boaz. They marry and they have a child. And we have this old woman in her old age who's lost her husband, who's lost her two boys, and now she is there and it says, then Naomi took the child, laid him in her lap, and cared for him. This is Ruth's 
and listened to what the townspeople said. The women living there said, Naomi has a son, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Verse, eight, verse 21. Salmon, the father of Boaz. Boaz, the father of Obed. Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David. Sounds a little similar to what Matthew wrote, isn't it? Out of this relationship, something happened. Out of this tragedy, something happened. In this tragedy, do you really think Naomi thought that this would happen? Do you really think that Naomi thought that on down the line, 14 generations later, Jesus Christ is going to come out of this relationship? Probably not, folks. In the circumstances that we live in, we often look at the circumstance. And we don't think of the potential of what God can do out of the circumstance. And out of this relationship and out of this mentorship... We see a relationship bloom, and we have this aged woman sitting with a child in her lap, and now completely full, a woman who was emptied. When you sharpen iron, you're not only sharpening someone else's life, but you're getting something in return. You're getting the fullness of what God expects of his kid and wants to give his kids. On vacation, I turn my phone on airplane mode because I don't want to get any calls. I don't want to look at social media. I don't get on Facebook. I don't do any of that. I try to separate myself as best that I can. But something strange happened over vacation. My wife, she still flips through Facebook. You know, she looks at things. And she sees this on Facebook. She sees this. This is Faye and Eugene. They're not here today. I didn't tell them that I was going to do this because if I told them that I was going to do this, then they still wouldn't be here. Um, she said, hey, look at this. I said, what? Faye and Eugene went to Owen, Owen's soccer game. What? Let me see that. And I saw these pictures. And how wonderful. And she, Amy looked at me and she said, that's our church. Those are our folks. They do ministry. It's not even in the bulletin. I said, wow, that's awesome. That's Naomi and Ruth. That's Eli and Samuel, right? And if you tell Faye and Eugene, they're going to kill me because they don't like this stuff. That's iron sharpening iron, right? I, and, and I asked, I asked uh, Emily and if I could show the picture of, of Owen up there, and she said yes. And this next story, I, I asked... Um, to share this next story. It was, uh, it was the Wednesday before I was leaving for Wednesday night. Um, Jamie Feathers, she came up to me and said, <laughs> she said, uh, we're not going to be here for Wednesday night. Uh, 
because she dropped her daughter for off for the um, teen teen group and and I said well why not why aren't you gonna be here for Wednesday night she's been coming for several weeks and uh, she said well my kids are a distraction what kids are a distraction and her two boys Reed and Damien were sitting there and I said let's let's go outside let's talk out there I said so hey what now you're not coming tonight why not well my kids are a distraction I said no they're not I said and I asked this question she'll admit to it are you really saying that they're a distraction for you said, no one has come up to you and said my kids are a distraction? I said, no, they have not come up to me and said that they're a distraction. Well, they're just being nice. I said, Jamie, no, they're not. I said, these people love Jesus. Jesus has changed their life. And they love your kids said, would you rather your kids be at home by themselves or would you rather them be here with a group of people that will high-five them, that will hug them, that will love them, that will ask them how their day was, what they learned at school, sit with them, pray over them. I said, they're not a distraction. They're fine. And so standing over here, we were having discussions. What we do on Wednesday night, we have discussion about Scripture. And Reed was sitting right there, and I asked the question to the adults. Reed throws up his hand. And he answers the question. I high-fived him, and I winked at Jamie. But then, again, on vacation, Amy's, hey, look what I found. I asked Matt Cope to lead on Wednesday night, to facilitate, actually, to facilitate the discussion on Wednesday night. And I see this. This is Reed. This is Jamie's boy. How old is he? He's nine years old. And this is Reed. Nine years old with our adults. Our senior adults and some of our younger adults. Engaged in the scripture. Engaged in the discussion. Folks. This is stuff this is who we are. This is what we're about. Because not only is Reed getting something, is he growing spiritually? And he's connecting socially? And he's maturing? But God is using you the way you're supposed to be used. To be building into people. To be sharpening people. This is the answer to the question of how will the church outlive you and me? Because guess what? One day, 
I'm going to be in a box. And I already told my wife, cremate me. All of us are going to be in a box. Right? You ain't going to be sitting in this pew for eternity. The church is supposed to outlive us. This is the way to do it. To build into people. To build. Not just merely high five. To come around them. To offer them wisdom. To sharpen them. To intentionally sit and engage with them. To say, hey, I want to pray for you. I want to listen to you. Tell me about your life. Folks, this is how Wapak Naz will outlive you and me. They're not the future generation. They're the current generation. They are the current church. If you're a teenager, you're a kid in here, you're a junior higher, we love you and we believe in you and we want to learn from you and we want you to learn from us. We're grateful for you. God's got something for you greater than you know right now. And for those of you that are adults that are sitting in here, that may be grayed or not so grayed, or getting gray, God's got something greater for you, something amazing. Will you step into that role? Will you step into that role and mentor? So here's your life apps. It's about intentionally investing in others' lives. You know what? The secular world does this really, really well. Really well. They call these programs like Big Brothers, Big Sisters. The church should be doing this very well. We need to intentionally invest in others' lives. Whether it's a younger generation or young adults, because guess what? Everybody's starving for community. It's not just this younger generation. It's you and I. It's me it's our senior adults. It's our kids. It's our youth. Get sharp and sharpen someone. Um, we need to have an iron in our life. My iron moved away. I just found out last month that my iron is, uh, he's a pastor in another church in Indianapolis now. Connections pastor. Met with him every other week I'm asking the Lord for an iron that we both can sharpen one another get sharp and sharpen someone you need it, I need it mentor and multiply folks, it's not about addition it's all about multiplication the church is about multiplication we just don't add we multiply we duplicate Mentoring duplicates. Mentoring multiplies. I still have my mentor in my life, and I'm grateful for him. He's a lot further along than I am, and he's a lot older than I am. He's experienced things that I've, I've never experienced in the pastorate and in life. We need it. I need it. You need it. We don't do this in isolation, folks. Will you pick at least one of these? And ask the Lord for that in your life. So this morning, I want you to eyeball this screen. This is going to get real practical real quick. Eyeball the screen. 
choose one of those three right now. Got one? All right. The next step is you're going to ask the Lord. You're going to ask the Lord to do that. So will you please stand? Because we've been sitting a long time. And you've been hearing me talk a lot. Which one did you eyeball? Which one resonated for you? Will you bow your head? And will you ask him? Go ahead. He's waiting. Jesus, they're doing it. So should I. Lord, to be honest, I miss my iron. I know I can call them. But Lord, I, I need that iron in my life. Will you provide that individual, that man, that will sharpen me and that I can sharpen him? that we can grow in Christ together, that we can carve out an hour, some time, just talk about life, talk about ministry, to admonish, to rebuke, but also encourage and lift up and pray over. Will you provide that in my life? Will you do that in us? Lord, you know what we've eyeballed. And Lord Jesus, I firmly believe that these are the next steps in discipleship. This is the next step in expanding the kingdom of God, deepening lives, deepening households in faith, and taking ownership. So Lord Father, will you use us to intentionally invest in other people's lives, not to just walk by and say hi, but to stop, just as Matt said earlier, just to stop and say, man, what's going on in your world right now? I'm going to pray for you. And I want you to know I'm going to pray for you for a while. Lord, we need to intentionally invest. Will you open our eyes to those in which we need to invest into, to take stock in, to take time with? Father, help us sharpen one another. Lord, provide those that are asking for their iron Will you provide it for them? Lord, and I'm going to ask that you provide it for them in the next month. May, they, may that happen. May you reveal that. May that relationship happen. And Lord Father, for all, those of us, we may not think that we're wise, but Lord God, you have, you have grown us and you have moved in us. We are the older generation. And Lord God, I ask that you use us, that you help us step up to mentor those that, that are younger. Older couples with older couples, or younger couples. Kids with, with moms and dads. And Lord, we, we just need to do that. Because a product can happen. Something can happen. Fruit can happen. Lives can be transformed. May this be the next step for us. Lord, I love you. And I thank you. And I know you're going to do it.
know you're going to stir hearts. I believe it. It's in your name that we pray today. Amen. Um, with that said, if you, if you find an iron or if you, God reveals a mentor for you or you to mentor someone, will you just tell me? Like, just say, hey, I'm doing this or this is a person that's speaking in my life. Will you please do that? Yes, Pastor. Thank you. You're great at that. Hey, may you love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength. And may you love your neighbor as yourself. There is no encounter tonight because it's Labor Day weekend. So be with family and friends and hang out and grill out. We love you. We'll see you next week.